electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Big show today. Uh, big tech versus small. App makers say they are afraid of the power of Google and Apple in front of Congress. We're going to discuss the fear index of the valley. Plus, feud delivery. Two rival CEOs going at it on Twitter, and we've booked one of them to come on and explain. And then Sony inking that massive deal with Disney weeks after a blockbuster deal with Netflix. The CEO of Sony Pictures on the arms race for content coming up on Tech Check in just a few minutes. And gut check on stocks. Dow is lower, NASDAQ higher this morning. AT&T booming on better than expected earnings. That's a big move for that stock. Semis moving lower. The SMH off by almost a full percent ahead of Intel earnings, John. Yes, and... We are all afraid. That's what one app maker told Congress yesterday. Spotify, Tile, and Match Group, which owns Tinder, all voicing concern about the power Apple and Google have over their businesses. This as big tech continues to spend money in Washington. Amazon and Facebook leading the way with close to $5 million spent on lobbying in Q1 of this year alone. Plus, Lena Khan on the Hill yesterday for her FTC confirmation hearing. Khan is known as a critic of tech's power, a signal from the Biden administration, maybe, that they are moving away from consumer harm as a measuring stick when it comes to antitrust regulation, Deirdre. And that, to me, is the issue. If the U.S. moves to more of a European-style uh, approach to antitrust regulation, where it's more about competition, less about consumer harm, does that result in more of a European-style tech ecosystem, which uh, investors, I think, would agree would not be a good thing. Right. Would that sort of make investors wake up and take these regulations seriously? We have seen indications we could be moving there. Progress has been very slow. Carl, the key question um, I think that antitrust regulators are going to have to think about is, are these companies, the Spotify's, the Tiles, are they successful because of the App Store ecosystems, which their commissions help to pay for, or are they successful despite it? And it's probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Amy Klobuchar, John, um, who chairs the antitrust panel at Judiciary yesterday, said capitalism is about competition. It's about new competitors emerging. And this situation, to me, she says, doesn't seem like that's happening when you have two companies, meaning Apple and Google, really dominating in their respective spaces. Well, that is where we will start uh, with Nilay Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge and a CNBC contributor. Nilay, I mean, I know it's popular to beat up on the big guys here, and certainly with some of the details that we've heard out of this, uh, Apple and Google haven't always acquitted themselves well when it, when it comes to at least hey, the appearance of fair treatment here. But is there the risk of killing the golden goose if they buckle down too hard on regulation here? 
I, I think there is, but I also don't think that there's any risk of killing consumer demand for great apps and services. And so the question is whether you're going to slow down the overall vibrancy of the industry and you're going to slow down how it's growing, but you're definitely not going to slow down people wanting to use their phones for more and more things. And I think the key question as I watched the hearing yesterday and I read all the coverage of it afterwards is Apple really thinks of the iPhone as their phone. They think that all of the commerce that's transacted in their store and in apps on the phone accrue to, should accrue to them and they should get benefit from it because they made the phone. That is a totally fair position. I think the app makers and a lot of user advocates would say, no, it's actually your phone. Once you pay Apple the money for the phone, you should be allowed to do a bunch of things on it without Apple getting in the way. And I think fundamentally, that question is one that Apple's not going to bend on because of market pressure. It's a question that Apple's going to bend on because the government makes them bend on it. I, and I, I watched that hearing in, in a very bipartisan way. The committee was like, you should probably bend on this because all these companies, vibrant, great American companies, are kind of afraid of you. Right. But, Neelay, these are mid-sized companies, right? They, they've grown pretty large. And you contrast that with some of the small businesses who really appreciate that Apple ecosystem, see it as sort of a badge of honor once they make it in. And then there's the whole question of consumers, right? What do consumers actually want? I know I've said before that I appreciate that ecosystem, my payments all in one place. So where are the antitrust regulators going to land on this? Are they going to be focusing on the consumers or these mid-sized companies that say they're afraid of the companies? I, I think it's both. And I, I think John brought up the consumer welfare standard. Uh, you know, Lena Khan is a huge proponent of changing that standard. At the FTC, she's not going to change that standard. Congress has to change that standard. So I think what you're going to see is Congress moving forward, changing the consumer welfare standard. So they're more focused on a competition. And then in a new generation of regulators like Lena Khan, like Tim Wu, coming in and saying, are these markets actually competitive? And are the steps that have been taken in Europe, are they effective, right? Because we don't think that they are. Browser ballots on Microsoft Windows in Europe have not led to a proliferation of browsers. Browser ballots on Android and Windows have not led to a proliferation of different browsers and search engines on Android. So there are these like heavy-handed <laughs> European-style interventions. We don't think they work, but there's a whole bunch of other things you can try. And you can start by saying, look, if there was competition for distribution, which is what App Source fundamentally are, there's competition for distribution. Maybe the rates that Apple charges would be lower. And maybe Apple wouldn't get away with saying, we keep users safe, while you can still find just explicit scam apps all over that store without trying very hard. Yeah, Neil, it, your point reminds me of this, this piece that Matthew Ball has written about the future Internet and, and the ongoing evolution of the broad ecosystem. And he points out that Apple, no company's done more than them uh, to make the Internet what it is over the past 15 years. But he also calls them the biggest inhibitor to this next chapter because of the tolls, the controls and the technologies of theirs that deny what gets made and, st uh, and that makes the open web uh, so powerful. I wonder if you think that's fair. I do think that's fair. You know, one of my favorite phrases about sort of the Web 2.0 era is from Alexis Ohanian, who called it permissionless innovation, right? You didn't have to ask for permission to build a website or a service or a great internet company. You can just go out and do it and succeed or fail when some people succeeded and some people failed. With Apple, you might not need permission right away, 
But there will come a point when Apple looks at your business and says, no, we want that one, right? It, it happened with podcasts uh, just a couple days ago. If you want to launch a paid podcast, you can do it through Apple's podcast app, which is dominant, and your customers will end up paying Apple a 30% cut. You will have to give that cut away. If you want to distribute a paid podcast through Spotify, well, you're going to have to charge a higher price because Apple, or because Spotify will also have to pay that 30% cut to Apple. Now, is that fair? Is that does any value accrue to Spotify or a podcaster or a podcast listener by giving that money to Apple in that instance, or is that just free margin? And I, I think the answer is like probably Apple Music and Apple Podcasts and Spotify should just more freely compete for that margin, for that distribution power, for ultimately users and listeners. But there's no there's no pressure on Apple to do it in the market context. That pressure is going to have to come legislatively. Well, uh, Neil, speaking of legislative, uh, we want to bring in our Eamon Jabbers, who is with us on uh, something that we mentioned earlier, which is the lobbying dollars that big tech is spending in Washington. Eamon, what to make of these? Yeah, John, look, you showed those numbers earlier, and this is like that scene in a gladiator movie when all the warriors are putting on the armor and they're lacing up their boots and they're sharpening their swords. I mean, this is they're getting geared up here and ready to go for what is expected to be a big year. I mean, these are these are big numbers for these companies. Uh, they're not as big as we see in some other sectors, but still uh, you're looking at large spends in lobbying. And and I think what you're going to see here is the tech guys are going to adopt a strategy that we've seen in other industries historically in Washington. I mean, this standard play here uh, is to cooperate and co-opt whatever's going on in Washington. So once you conclude that the train is leaving the station here to mix all my metaphors up horribly, uh, you decide, well, if this is happening anyway, we better get on board as proponents of it, and then we can steer it a little bit in the direction we want it to go and maybe steer it a lot in the direction we want to go. That's historically how industry has approached these things in Washington. So they resist, 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 say this is a terrible idea, terrible idea. Then they have this moment of revelation and say, you know what, we agree, it's about time for some reform, and here are our 10 bullet points on how we should do the reform. I think that's sort of what you're going to see shaking out in Washington over 2021. Eamon, I appreciate the metaphor. I did follow it. Sort of, if you're not with us, you're against it, so you might as well get on board. <laughs> Neelay, let me pose this question right. to you. I worked um, in, in terms like of gladiators and trains effort. and a bunch of other things. <laughs> it worked. It worked. Um, Neelay, I'm sure you, fo you followed it as well. And for a while, you know, it really seemed like states were making progress on regulation. There was that bill in Arizona that could impact app store sales that, you know, had this landmark victory. But then it sort of went away. And Apple and Google spent huge amounts of money there in terms of lobbying effort. Is that another example of lobbying being successful and still working for them, getting things sort of to go the other way? Yeah, you know, I, I think state Apple and Google dumping a bunch of money in state legislatures, it's, it, it feels like it will always be more effective than doing it at the federal level, where there's a lot more attention, there's a lot more heat, and you have, you know, bipartisan support in the Congress, and you have a lot of ability to make noise about how evil big tech is. I think the strategy of that legislation in the states, the strategy of the small app makers, is to go out and put piecemeal pressure on regulation. So the companies are forced to say, well, we would prefer federal legislation so the rules are the same across the entire market of the United States. Then they can come to the table in Washington and uh, you can say it's co-opt. I prefer the Microsoft term embrace and extinguish. Uh, 
embrace, extend, and extinguish, where they come to the table and they, they try to write and tailor the legislation to their own needs. You are already actually seeing Microsoft heavily involved in let's let's have some regulation around Google around the world. You're already seeing the companies say, we, we would love regulation. Facebook is already doing that. So I think there's a huge push at the state level from the smaller app makers to get the companies to the, the table at the federal level. And at that level, I think that's what the fight's going to be. And the big companies are going to try to be very active in drafting uh, and tailoring that legislation to their own needs. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, Neelay, Eamon, our thanks to both of you guys for kicking off the hour. Appreciate it very much. It does bring us to this morning's crowdsource. It's about that very lobbying Neelay's talking about. Amazon lead the pack. Facebook not far behind. It got us to thinking between Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Apple, which of these companies are you most wary of? Tweet us your ideas. There's a QR code on the bottom left of your screen. Goes to our Twitter page. We'll get some of your responses at the end of the show. Maybe it's none of them. Um, Coming up next, the CEOs of Uber and Just Eat mixing it up on Twitter. The outspoken CEO of Just Eat will join us in just a moment. We are just getting started here on Tech Check. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check on Micron shares falling this morning, down more than 4%. Earlier today, Fitch affirmed its triple B minus rating on the debt, revised the outlook to positive from stable. And the company, Micron, also releasing an annual sustainability report. The goal is spending about a billion dollars on environmental causes by 2028. The stock's still close to doubling uh, over the course of the year, Deirdre. Well, meanwhile, John, the delivery wars continue to heat up. This time, two rival CEOs taking to Twitter as they prepare to enter each other's markets. Just Eat Takeaway CEO Yitzhak Grown accusing Uber CEO of depressing Just Eat's share price by announcing new plans to expand in Germany. Dara Khosrow Shahi hitting back, telling Groen to focus on the business instead of short-term stock moves. Then Groen swinging back, attacking Uber's tax and labor practices, that rare public company CEO versus CEO on Twitter that we have come to love. Joining us now is the man himself, the always outspoken, Justy Takeaway CEO, Yitzhak Groen. Yitzhak, good morning, and thank you so much for being with us. Uh, now, what did Darukas Roshahi do exactly to try to depress jet shares, and what were you referring to when you suggested that you've seen it before? Well, very simply put, you know, here, here we are. This company is worth, what, 100 uh, billion U.S. dollars, and they're completely obsessed with us. They're constantly talking about us. They put us, I think, in that interview, they've mentioned us about 10 times. You know, it, it, at, at some point, it doesn't make sense anymore. They need to start focusing on themselves and not on us. And therefore, I said, well, you know, apparently you want to 
do something to us if you're talking about us rather than about your own expansion. Uh, and that was the nature of my of my tweet. I meant no harm with it. Okay. Um, labor issues also came up in that Twitter spat. I asked Dara Khosr Shahi just last week why he couldn't make a group of their drivers employees. I actually pointed to your op-ed a few months ago, and he said a line that we have heard from Uber many times, that doing so would take away the flexibility of their drivers, and their drivers want flexibility. Is that true? You have made a group of your driver's employees. It's a, it's a false contradiction. Uh, just to explain this to, to you, I, I used to be, I'm the founder of Takeaway.com. I founded my business uh, 22 uh, years ago. So also, you know, I, I got a little bit upset with the reply by, by Dara because, you know, if you are in a business for 22 years, if you have started your business with 50 euros, you're probably not so much focused on the short-term results of, uh, of, of, of your share price. Um, I, I, I think the importance here is that Takeaway.com has always employed its couriers. That's what we started to do in 2016, and that's what we have expanded. So we do that, we do that in Holland, in, in Germany, in Austria, in quite a number of countries across Europe. We merged with Just Eat last year. I, I'm still the CEO of their combination, and we started doing that also in the legacy Just Eat countries. We started doing that, for instance, in the UK, uh, we are now looking at uh, a collaboration with the Australian government to also also do that in Australia, and we're just you know taking these countries one by one to see whether we can improve the uh, conditions for, uh, for 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 the workers. And I'm talking about a false contradiction between the two because you know if, if you ask a person would you like flexibility, who would say no to that? Right? You get a pretty you know pretty realistic mm-hmm. result of about 90% of people that like flexibility. But why would people that like flexibility not like health insurance? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. So, so to be clear, Yitza, your employees that you actually treat as for full employees, they also have flexibility while being food delivery drivers. Yeah, you know, you can have zero-hour contracts. You can have four-hour contracts. You can have full employment. You can do all that, right? So, you know, of course, it takes more administration. It's more expensive, of course, if you have to pay taxes and social security. Mm-hmm. So it's probably the reason that other people don't do that. But, you know, the flexibility is also there. Yitza, isn't Dara doing you a favor talking about Just Eat Takeaway? I mean, I don't know about depressing your stock price. The stock seems to be doing what it does. But we're talking to you. We're, we're thinking about uh, food delivery in Germany, which is not something we normally talk about? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he should talk about you more often. Why is that a problem? Well, it's not a problem. I've never said it's a problem. I was surprised that, uh, that Dara sent me a tweet, you know, I, you know, and I responded to that tweet. He gave me some advice about how to run my business, and I gave him some, some advice back. That's the only thing that has happened. It was rather public. I, I admit that. So uh, when it comes to the business, we've seen in the U.S. quite a few uh, delivery companies, you know, DoorDash comes to mind, get quite a boost off of uh, the needs of the customer during the pandemic. When we look at your stock price, uh, how do we see that play out? How has it affected your operations and to, to what degree does opening up change the outlook for you? Well, we, we, we almost doubled in size, so we also saw, saw quite some, uh, some uh, tailwind from, from the pandemic. But what was, what was also important to us is that we merged uh, our companies, right? So realistically, if you look at Takeaway.com, the company that I was running back in March last year, we're now five times the size. Now, if you add them up, we're, we're almost double, double the size. 
we've invested heavily in the last year. We've invested in rolling out a big logistical network. We've invested in price leadership across our countries, whether that's Australia, Canada, or the, or the UK. Um, so we did not only have that pandemic. Now, of course, the pandemic is going to fall away. We have a split business model. We have, a, we have on the one hand, a marketplace model in which the restaurants deliver the food. On the other hand, and that's a very sizable business, we have a logistical business that's in direct competition to other players, such as the one that you just mentioned. That logistical business is going to be hit by the end of the pandemic because people will go to restaurants. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you would try to lock them up, they're going to go to restaurants after the pandemic subsides. Um, however, that's the strongest growing part right. of our company. So in our case, take, take the UK, we have a 700% growth. So let's say that takes a hit, you go to 500% still quite a hefty growth for us. So we're quite confident that we're going to be fine. And we've said that our order growth will accelerate this year. Right. I want to dig into that business model a little bit. It's, um, uh, some investors worry that taking on an employee model would push profitability for food delivery companies further out. Um, and as you just said, making some of your couriers employees is more expensive. Yet when I look at the balance sheet of yours versus Uber's versus DoorDash, just Eat Takeaway has actually achieved adjusted EBITDA uh, positivity over the last two years, and your net loss just a fraction of Uber's. Help me understand this. Is this a function of operating in a different market in Europe? Are the calculations different? How are you sort of able to achieve that adjusted EBITDA profitability when it, Uber says it's far out, further out, if you know, they make their drivers employees? Well, I think it's important to look at, at you know, the country in which you operate and the model that, that you use. So if you look at the most important countries in Europe for food delivery, you're looking at Holland, Germany and the UK. Those are by far the most important countries in the, in the sector. All the other countries are nice, you know, and we are the market leader in the vast majority of, of Europe. But those three countries are important. And why are they important? Because actually in those countries, you have a huge marketplace business, which is mostly with us. And on top of that, you have a logistical business. The difference with Canada, in which we also use, and, uh, and the U.S., is that Canadians and Americans just pay more for food delivery than what a German would. So actually, profitability on the logistics is very complicated. That's where we compete with our competition. Marketplace, actually, is very profitable. So if you look at the most profitable food delivery websites on Earth, you are looking at our Dutch business, our German business, our UK business, and our Canadian business. So... You know, we're in a very healthy situation. We have a, an enormous marketing budget. We are sponsoring Euro 2020, the Champions League and all that. We have a fantastic vantage point and we are just expanding our business. Um, so we have a different sort right. of setup as opposed to companies that have never created any profits anywhere. Yeah. And well, I, I will be interested to see what kind of model, what strategy you take when you do enter the U.S. market through your Grubhub uh, acquisition, but yeah, so we're out of time, so we'll have to. I hope you will come back on and discuss that with us. Thank you for <laughs> chatting you. with us today. It's a growing of Just Eat Takeaway. Thank you. And Carl should mention too that we did reach out to Uber. They had uh, no comment. All right, uh, D, thanks for that. Uh, still ahead this morning, music icon Steve Aoki is creating his own NFT. He's going to join us live. Plus, uh, Disney signing this major streaming deal with Sony, and Julia's got a lot more on it, Julia. Sony Pictures has established itself as an arms dealer to the biggest streamers out there. We'll talk to its CEO, Tony Vincequera, about the future of film and content distribution. That's coming up after the break.
Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check here on CNBC. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa, Carl Quintanilla, and Julia Borston. Stocks are lower, but some of the tech momentum plays in the green. Peloton, Zoom, DocuSign, all higher. Let's get a news update now with Rahel Solomon. Rahel. Hi, John. Good morning, everyone. Another pandemic low for weekly jobless claims at 547,000. It's also below the consensus forecast and continuing claims drop for the 14th Street week. But overall, employment, of course, still well below pre-COVID levels. Shares of AT&T are up more than 4% after better-than-expected earnings. CEO John Stinky tells CNBC that he's confident about the prospects for HBO Max in the streaming war, saying that the glory days are still in front of us. Both Southwest and American Airlines say that they're selling more tickets and also plan to add more flights this spring and summer as more people are vaccinated. Excluding one-time items, both carriers reported a loss for the first quarter. And a study that surveyed more than 30,000 workers finds that the increase in working from home will boost U.S. productivity by 5%. That's mostly due to time savings from not commuting. I'll send it back to you, John. Rahel, thank you. Uh, Sony Pictures inking a major deal with Disney yesterday, and that's on the heels of a big deal with Netflix. Julia, I guess not every content company needs to build out its own streaming service? I think that's right, John. We're seeing Sony take a very different direction here. Um, I'm told that these deals with Netflix and Disney that Sony is in could bring Sony as much as $3 billion in revenues over the next five years, though the company is not commenting on that number. But joining us now to comment on the strategy behind it is the CEO of Sony Pictures, Tony Vincequera. Tony, thanks so much for coming uh, to talk to us today on the heels of this big news this Netflix deal, the Disney deal, what do these say about your strategic future, especially at a time when you have so many of these other companies pushing forward with their own streaming services? Yeah, Julia, you, you, you and I have talked about this, uh, I think, a number of times that we set a strategy three and a half, four years ago to be the Switzerland of uh, programmers where we will sell to everyone. Our creators are excited about that. And uh, the Seinfeld deal that we did last year, the Netflix deal and the Disney deal are evidence that the strategy is absolutely working. So I want to understand a little bit more about this Netflix deal, because in addition to your theatrical distribution, which is totally separate Good. from either of these streaming deals, you do have a first look deal with Netflix to allow them to buy some of your films for streaming. How does that fit into your whole strategy of putting films into theaters and that delay before they're available uh, at home? Well, you know, this does not affect the, the number or the quality of the films that we're going to be putting into theaters. We're still going to do 15 to 20 films per year that go into theaters. And we're very, very excited about the, the, the pattern now that's taking place where people are excited to go back to theaters. The, the deal that with Netflix, we have tremendous capacity. And, you know, it was, it was not economical to put more films into theaters now we have another outlet. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an additional business line for us, and we're very excited about it. 
Now, as we are talking about theaters in this moment, I got to jump in before we get on to more Netflix and Disney pieces of this conversation. To your strategy about theatrical distribution, it mm-hmm. seems like pretty much every other studio has decided to shorten the window in one way or another, uh, whether it's HBO Max releasing films in theaters and on HBO Max at the same time or Disney offering films for $30 to its subscribers. Are you mm-hmm. planning to shorten that window in any way? Well, it, it, look, shorter windows will benefit everyone, we think, and we'll, we'll negotiate those in, with individual uh, exhibitors. But the, the deals that we've just uh, concluded uh, rep- represent the traditional window st- strategy. But look, I think, I think it's pretty clear that windows are being negotiated everywhere and evolving as we speak. Well, so that sounds like a maybe more to come uh, to that answer there. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on the relationship with Disney. Um, For our viewers who are not familiar, you know, you own the rights to some of the Marvel characters, including Spider-Man, very valuable. But the relationship with Disney has not been so great at points in the past. What does this deal with them say about what we can expect um, about the sort of general collaboration between these two studios going forward? Well, I think that the relationship between our two companies is terrific. We had a little bit of a squabble, you know, a couple of years ago over the the potential of uh, Spider-Man remaining in in uh, the Avengers and and vice versa, Avengers coming into Spider-Man. But we settled that, and you know, other than that, I think our relationship has been terrific, and we're looking forward to being even in closer in a closer relationship with Disney going forward. Um, they're a great company. We're a well, very yeah. good company. Uh, sounds like we're going to have opportunity to see those Spider-Man movies on Disney Plus at points in the future. Um, Tony, very exciting time for the company as it makes these deals with Netflix and Disney it's and certainly for the industry as a whole with so much transformation. Thanks so much for joining us today. And Deirdre, back over to you. Thanks, Julia. And Julia, viewers will get a bonus hour of Tech Check tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. That's 4 p.m. Pacific, where we are. And I am stoked for this, Julia. You have organized an incredible lineup of guests. And really, there's no one better than you at the intersection of entertainment and tech. Deirdre, I'm so excited for this hour tonight. I'm so glad that you're going to be joining me. We are going to be talking to so many fascinating thought leaders across film, streaming, uh, and movies. We're going to talk to the founder of Alamo Drafthouse, which is a cult favorite in the movie theater space. Kevin Mayer, the head of HBO Max, can talk about the growth and opportunities there. Franklin Leonard from The Blacklist about diversity in Hollywood and democratizing access to Hollywood, as well as Hello Sunshine's uh, COO to talk about how that studio is really creating content for and by women. That, of course, is Reese Witherspoon's company. It's going to be a great lineup. And if you care about the future of content distribution media, you got to tune in tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern for Pacific. Guys. I cannot wait, Julia. Guys, that sounds amazing, especially ahead of uh, Oscar night on Sunday. When we come back, we're going to hear from the head of Facebook's app. Has some strong words about Apple's uh, planned privacy changes. And keep your eye on Alphabet today, up 30% for the year. Jefferies today goes to 2700 They do see a favorable setup going into earnings next week. We're back in a minute. Facebook not holding back ahead of next week's update of Apple's operating system. The app tracking transparency feature goes into effect and will limit ad targeting capabilities. The head of Facebook app, Fiji Simo, tells me the update 
She says has nothing to do with privacy, but rather increasing Apple's profits. I think this has very little to do with with um, trusting Facebook with with uh, their data. I think this move by Apple is a really transparent move uh, to move the industry away from a free and open internet towards an internet where you know app developers are going to be required to charge for content so that Apple can take a 30% subscription, uh, 30% cut of the subscription uh, and make personalized advertising a lot worse. Uh, so I think it's a very transparent move by Apple to increase their profits and, and really uh, not, not at all about privacy. I, I wish it was about privacy because I think there is a very important debate to be had about privacy around advertising. Certainly, Carl, there is much more to come on this story, which we've been covering so closely. And of course, Apple would say that they're simply giving users the choice. John. Yeah. <laughs> and Facebook attacking Apple over privacy and a free and open Internet. Wow. OK. 2021 coming in hot. Still to come, Steve Aoki uh, talks NFTs. One of the most famous DJs in the world joins us next with his new release. Plus, J.P. Morgan naming Amazon a top pick for that story and all the big calls on the street. Subscribe to CNBC Pro, cnbc.com slash pro. We'll be right back. NFTs, as you know, have uh, taken on the art and investing world by storm. Names ranging from Jack Dorsey to Patrick Mahomes hopping on the trend. Uh, joining us this morning on the heels of his newest NFT release, what you're seeing right now on the screen, legendary DJ Steve Aoki alongside creative partner Tom Bilyeu, Impact Theories CEO, who also founded Quest Nutrition, by the way. Gentlemen, welcome and congratulations. Great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having Thanks us. For having us. Steve, I mean, you've been a visionary in so many uh, mediums. I just wonder what caught your eye about this new space? What do you have planned and how big do you think it can get? Uh, we're at the start for sure. I really do feel that we're early in the space, but the space is going to grow to be something that we're all going to use as a means of collecting uh, art and collecting valuable things in the future. Um, I, I'm a big believer that this is this is uh, inevitable. That we're always that we're going to be part of an NFT culture, or culture is going to be NFT. And um, I'm excited to get in early. Um, I already had uh, an NFT collection that came out a few months ago that did really well. I'm really excited about this one to do this one with Tom and Mache, the the artists that we work with, um, bringing in anime culture, science fiction, uh, this concept neon future that that we built out into a comic book series. And now the next adaptation is this NFT collection and uh, share that with the world. That's fascinating. Tom, I, I want to get your take too on where you see the market going and, and really who you think the target audience is in these early days. Who, who are you trying to reach? So ultimately, we're trying to reach collectors more than investors. Um, but we're very aware that right now, the investing scene is really where it's popping off. So we're focused on long-term value, making sure that what we do goes up in value, which is a big deal to this community, um, and wanting to really bring true art. Like there's nothing, for me, there's nothing more exciting visually than digital art. And so to see it finally come into a space where artists can truly dedicate their lives to it and actually make a living, 
um, that we think of it sort of twofold, both the artists and the collectors. Steve, you've got more than 8 million followers on Twitter, nearly 9 million on Instagram. I am curious, with the whole direct-to-consumer push, the management of your brand, how has this weird year in the pandemic kind of changed your thinking uh, or changed your focus, if at all? There's no doubt that if uh, I was not in a pandemic, I wouldn't have gotten so deep into all these different areas outside of music. Um, I, like in the middle summer of 2020 is when I, I got my first, I started getting my feet wet with NFTs. I started getting my feet wet with collectibles. I got really heavy into sports cards and into Pokemon cards and um, into day trading. And, um, and there's just, I wouldn't have the time to be able to invest as much as I did if, if it wasn't for uh, being stuck at home. And um, I think a lot of us were in the same position where we had to reset our lives and, and stop the, the busy trains that we're all in to do other things. And, and it's allowed me to see so many different things that, that, I, that I wanted to get involved in and, uh, and grow in, the, in these worlds. So I'm, I'm, uh, the silver lining is I've, I've just been able to do other things in my life that, that bring me so much love and passion and new communities and new you know, new worlds that, 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 that inspire me and allow me to be creative. So I'm, uh, been really excited about what has come f forth from, from, uh, this being stuck at home period of time and figuring out how to, to be able to bring that back into my life as we get back to, you know, what this new normal will look like doing shows, um, in front of people, what that will be like where, cause I'm still, I'm a collector. There's no doubt about it. And how I could still collect and how I could still be part of that space and still be creative and still be able to, you know, put on the shows and do performances around the world. Right. And increasingly, we see artists and athletes on both sides of this trade. Now, much has been made about the empowerment and the additional revenue that NFTs can bring to artists and musicians. At the same time, uh, we've seen a lot of commercial hype around arguably less valuable tokens. Taco Bell had one. Even Charmin toilet paper had one. Uh, let me direct this question to you, Tom. Do those kinds of tokens hurt that broader NFT artist mission or do they help by bringing it more into the mainstream? They look, there's no question that there are some clumsy projects being done, but they really do bring <laughs> awareness to the space. And you you cannot be afraid to make mistakes, embarrass yourself. You know, we're really doing something pioneering right now and getting more people excited to be a pioneer, to go out and risk. You may fumble, you know, the some of the bigger companies, they can risk fumbling and okay, that, you know, that didn't go anywhere. As long as they protect their reputation by being good to the people that took a chance on them, they're gonna come out of this fine. And so that's how Steve and I are thinking of this is if we protect the long-term value of the people that have invested in the art that we're creating, we're gonna be here for a long time. If we come in and we cash grab, then there's gonna be a problem. But even some of the people that are doing cash grabs, at least they're bringing attention and awareness to, as Steve said, what is so clearly the future. This is a one-way street. We are not going backwards. So getting more people to adopt this quickly will ultimately be, I think, better for everybody. Steve, you mentioned live shows a minute ago. Uh, what happens to live shows when, when you're doing those again? Does the technology change them? The ability to buy stuff 
digitally, maybe even buy stuff with cryptocurrency? Do you incorporate digital uh, art more into the shows? Do you stream the shows and charge for them? Are you thinking about all that stuff? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's like, like te- the technology that's been developed uh, during this this pandemic has shot up. It's been exponential as far as how to make the experience for for people that are stuck at home. Like, what do you do to make that experience better? I mean, we had no choice. We had to make that technology better. Um, and now when shows are going to be back, we have that technology to actually be able to expand our, our reach. Because I was playing a lot of virtual shows, and some of the shows were larger as far as people watching me than my physical shows. So if you combine both of those worlds moving forward and you combine the space of NFTs where, I mean, like what Tom's saying is that I agree with that is that it, it's going to, it's, it's a one way street. We're, we're no, uh, we're not going back. Uh, digital is the future. And I think NFTs will be all prices. You know, you could, you could even mint a show. You could mint an experience. You could mint things that, that are important, meaningful uh, to certain people. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a gazillion dollars. It could be something that's more affordable. I think it's just going to be part of culture that the idea of minting or authenticating an experience or owning something um, can be something for, uh, you know, uh, a, a lower level and something that at, at a higher level. It's going to be all levels. So um, I'm excited to see where that goes, what live experiences are, because life how we experience things, uh, how we see art, how we like go about our, our way in life is, is all through like how we feel about the experience. And, and live experiences are a big part of, of what drives our hearts, just like the way we look at art. Yeah, I think everyone knows exactly where you're going with that one. Congratulations on this, though. And uh, we can't wait to see you back uh, doing dates on the road. Hopefully uh, that's another sign that normal's coming back. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Still to come, we double back on crowdsource. Big tech ramping up lobbying spend. We're going to hear from you about which company you're most concerned about or not. Plus, Kathy Wood and the ARC Fund weighing in on the environmental impact of Bitcoin. We'll be right back. Bitcoin mining, it is often decried for its high energy use, but could it actually be good for the environment? Well, Kathy Woods, ARK Invest, a longtime crypto bull with bets on Bitcoin and Coinbase, uh, out with a post claiming cryptocurrency mining could drive investment in solar power and make more renewable energy available to the grid, saying, quote, a world with Bitcoin is a world that, at equilibrium, generates more electricity from renewable carbon-free sources, Carl. All right, D, uh, as we go to break here, take a look at the uh, FANG stocks over the last week, all in the red. We know how much of a struggle uh, they've had of late. Uh, Netflix leading the way, by the way, after reporting subscriber growth slowing yesterday. Uh, plus, don't miss a bonus tech check tonight. As we said earlier, 7 p.m. Eastern time online, Julia and Deirdre with a star-studded lineup as we count down to the Oscars on Sunday. Go to CNBC.com, YouTube, LinkedIn, or Twitter to stream it live.
Biology for Manufacturing, a startup at the intersection, Zymergen, uh, going public today in an IPO raising half a billion dollars, valuing the firm at more than $3 billion. I asked the co-founder and CEO Josh Hoffman earlier this morning about how the company's unique manufacturing approach is ready to scale now. We're going public now because our technology is proven. It's validated. We have product in the market. We are, uh, have a super exciting customer pipeline. We're able to, to, to sell into to meet the market demand that we see it. And you know, you're right to, to talk about the, the scale of it. This is not a sort of proof of concept. We hope we only sell you know, into 10 phones. Um, we're, we're going now. Uh, now, you know, we'll have to continue to scale. And we, we certainly hope that uh, we have the kind of commercial success that will uh, mean that we have to continue to, to add capacity. Um, but we're ready to go. Flexible display is one of the types of technology that their tech uh, allows. If you want to hear more, uh, check out that QR code on the side of your screen to get the full stream, more than 10 minutes to, to learn about the company. And if you want to know more about Apple's new AirTags, CNBC got our hands on a pair. We're going to do a demo online after this show ends in just about 15 minutes. Go to our Twitter page. We'll give you uh, a link where you can see it. You can just see it right there on Twitter, Carl. Uh, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how those get incorporated into a daily life. At least that's certainly Apple's uh, hope. For our crowdsource guys, we uh, showed you big tech's lobbying spend numbers earlier in the hour and asked you which big tech name you were most wary of. Uh, one viewer says Amazon. Uh, they would love to keep their poverty wage is what, uh, is what one viewer writes. Motsky says Facebook. They are kids playing business who have weak corporate responsibility. And another viewer comments that the government is the only true monopoly here. They lack domain expertise but are ready to smash things. D, that's going to be the ongoing debate, the degree to which legislators in Congress have a full grasp of the issues. Carl, that is a really good illustration of sort of how inflamed tensions have become on both sides. But, John, I wonder, does the average user care about this stuff? I mean, we keep asking that question yeah. here on Tech Check, Don't and know, I guess that's the answer no, for regulators, No poverty too. wage at Amazon. They're starting at 15 an hour with benefits, Carl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, of course, if you get stock, that's a totally different story. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.